Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Not a normal Christmas text, but one I think you'll see is so very fitting for our study this morning. Philippians chapter 2. The Christmas season, the holiday season, seems to be an endless pursuit of awe. You have seen the ads or maybe have made the trek to the latest light display, which is intended to overwhelm you and awe you at such amazing precision, detail, and beauty. Or maybe you uh, are after the, the perfect gift and you've made your list and you've told your family about it a hundred different ways that if you only get this one thing, then you will be happy this Christmas and you just want to be awed by that one thing. The holiday season seems to be an endless pursuit of awe. As you know, that is a quickly dissipating awe. In those examples or any other that I could give you this morning, you know that within minutes, it seems your, your soul moves on to the next thing, looking for the next point of awe. And I want to take you this morning to a text which lays before you our Savior in such a way that he never loses his awe. It's one of those soul-shaping texts for me. It's one of those texts that, that you visit frequently in the New Testament in my life. Well, one that I found myself in repeatedly because I want to know Christ. I want to know this Jesus explained in this text. And I want it to so mark my life that I am stamped like this, with this humility. When you think of the word Christmas, lots of other singular words come to mind. Words like glory or hope or joy or love or peace or even redemption or the faithfulness of God. There's an aspect of, of Christmas that I think is typically forgotten or at least given very little attention, and it's kind of fitting for uh, the character quality that we're going to talk about this morning. It's an aspect that you see in Joseph and Mary. In fact, you see it prolifically in them, despised and, and on the margins of society. You see it in the shepherds, the, the lowly, lowliest of the low. You see it in the, the borrowed manger and the no place for them to have their baby. You see it in lots of other places in the Christmas narrative, but it's an aspect that's never seen to a greater extent than in Jesus himself. And what is that aspect? Well, you know, I've said it already. It's humility. It's the humility of our Lord. Our theme for our Christmas series this year is that God came down. That's a, an outlandish and eternally significant thought. It, it's a soul-capturing idea. It's a a love-inducing, worship-inspiring reality that God would come down to us. This is no more clearly seen, obviously, than when Jesus enters into humanity through his mother Mary's womb. This truth that God pierced our world and entered our existence, that truth sits at the heart of the gospel. The Christian gospel simply is not like the other religions of the world. Those religions give you a gospel that seeks to elevate man, that seeks to raise man up to, to some level in which we then can attain to eternal life or we can put ourselves in a position so as to gain eternal life from God. The current popular religions of, of science and technology seek to, to raise our experience and, and our ability to get beyond the limitations of a sin-cursed world namely death, and to get us past the day when we all will die. And if we raise ourselves high enough, maybe we can live 
forever. Maybe if we can take our technology and embed it in our brains. This is the conversation happening in the world of science right now. If we can take the technology and embed it in our brains, we can defeat death. And make no mistake about it, that is what's at play. To defeat death. To gain eternal life. Well, that's, a, that's a religion. That's an act of faith. To believe that by our advancement, we can raise ourselves to a level so as to get past the condemnation we've all earned with our own rebellion against God. But you see, we have a better gospel, don't we? Praise God, we have a better gospel. We have a gospel that doesn't have to raise us up to anything. We have a gospel in which God comes to us, comes into our reality and reveals himself to us. And and then through the work of Jesus, his life, death, burial, and resurrection, he redeems us from our sins. He, He buys us back from the slave market of our own sinfulness. And we, by faith, receive His finished work on our behalf. And and we are brought from death to life, from darkness to light, from endless condemnation, which we deserve, to endless peace and joy in the presence of God, which we do not deserve, but have been earned for us by Christ. Last week, we saw the sporadic and the spectacular uh, expressions of God coming into the world in the Old Testament. This week, we turn our attention to the culmination, the climax of human history, the the fullness of time, the greatest event to ever happen in all of world history. We're going to get it done in a few minutes. How, I don't know, but we're going to try. It's that moment where God, through the incarnation in in Bethlehem, came, took on human nature, and fully and truly entered into our existence. What kind of humility would it require to do that? What kind of mindset does it take to leave the highest of heavens and the highest height and the highest of heavens and to come and, and bridge the gap between holy God and sinful humanity and enter into our world? What was the nature and the quality of that mindset that compelled Jesus to leave heaven's throne and enter Mary's world? We often consider, as we think about the Christmas narrative, we talk a lot about the the players in the narrative and and how they must have been thinking or feeling or acting. We consider Mary, and and what must she have felt when she first laid gaze upon this promised son brought about by her virgin womb in miraculous fashion? We think of Joseph, and, and what must he have been thinking when he believed the report of the angel that this baby was from God and, and that he should take Mary as his wife, though it was going to completely upend his life. He would now forever be known as scandalous Joseph, whose wife was pregnant before Mary. But what must the shepherds have been thinking when, when they're watching sheep and all of a sudden a, an angel appears out of nowhere, this messenger from heaven, and overwhelms them and they fall to the ground in fear. What must they have been thinking? What what must have gone through the mind of the wise men as they traversed many miles to come and see the newborn king? When I ask you this morning, what of Jesus? What of Jesus? What must he have been thinking when he left heaven's throne and decided to come 
into Mary's womb. There's no greater text to tell us. We need not wonder. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 lets us know how Jesus thought about this moment. This is a, a text found in a letter from Paul to a church. He loved these people dearly. He had great joy over their ministry to them. But there was schism in the church. They were a church. There was problems in the church. That happens, right? We're humans. And at the heart of their problem was pride. As is at the heart of every human problem. Pride. And so he's writing to them to instruct them as to how they are not to be selfishly ambitious or conceited, thinking too highly of themselves, in verse 3. But rather, they're to look out, not for their own interests, but for the interests of others. And then, in verse 5, he transitions, he says, the only way you can do that is not because you're going to become such a great person and figure this out. The only way you do that is by looking to Jesus. So he says in verse 5, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, think as he thought. Take his way of thinking and processing and make it yours. Put it into your mindset. Become stamped with his image. Verse 6, who, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death. On a cross. Humility is not a virtue that our world is set up to honor or praise. Humility is often thought of as, as weakness. Our logic, humanly, and our, our reason seeks to elevate ourselves above others and, and to gain a level above someone else. And, and we're always after defeating them or beating them or being better than them so as to be higher than them. That is really at the heart of our competitive spirit, and I'm speaking to me first. At the heart of it is pride. It's selfish ambition. It's so that I would be thought of better than someone else. That's what we celebrate in society, right? We celebrate and applaud the athlete who is so talented and so skilled and so accomplished that they are above everyone else through performance and prestige. We celebrate the musician who puts on a better show than anyone else, who captures our likes and our tastes, and we love to listen to them. We marvel at the businessman or the businesswoman who can run such an enterprise so as to have success that none has ever seen before. We have our hopes set in politicians who make better promises than the other politicians to do what they say they're going to do if we put them into office. We think they have the the charisma and the ability and the wisdom to get it done when they get there. Humility doesn't get you to the top. It doesn't raise you to the tier of highest success, at least in the world's way of thinking. But along with that, we're also captured by stories of those from, from high levels in society reaching down to the poor and the despondent in society. In fact, you could probably go onto the local news website right now while I I speak and find three or four articles about athletes giving of their time this holiday season to feed the poor or to do a toy drive for some needy family. 
And those stories capture our attention because here's this social elite taking time from their busy schedule to consider the needs of someone lower than themselves. There's no greater example or expression of that kind of humility than what we find in the Son of God. It's a humility which is of such superior quality than has ever been seen before or since. It's a a once-in-human-history kind of humility. It's a humility that can only be seen and expressed by Jesus, and it's described for us by Paul in this text. And it's of such far-surpassing quality because of where Jesus came from, what He came into, and what He came to do. What did He come from in verse 6? Consider that and think about the humility of Jesus. What He came from was no less than the fullness of divinity. Paul uses very specific language in the, the original to communicate this truth. He says that Jesus was in the form of God, the morphe of God. The verb for was is a word that means that it's a previous state that never changes. It's a prior state of existence which is unalterable. It can't ever change. In other words, this is the way Jesus was before He came into the world, and it was never going to be different. He was and always will be in the very form of God. To be in the very form of God means to be God in your very nature. It's to be really and truly God in every way. This is an unalterable, unchangeable essence of being God. Paul says, Jesus, the Son, was God in the form of God. It's a synonymous phrase to the equality with God at the end of verse 6. So Paul is saying, so whatever you understand equality with God to be, then the form of God has to be in a similar capacity. They're synonymous phrases. So what does it mean to be equal with God? It means to be God in every way, right? So the form of God means to be God in every way. So Paul's saying in no uncertain terms that Jesus came into this world from a pre-existent state. So before he ever became a baby in Bethlehem, he was in a pre-existing state of an unchanging nature, an unalterable essence could never be anything but this. No matter what he chose to do next, he could never not be this. And he was in the form of God. He was co-eternal, co-equal, and co-existent with God. We learned that in John 1, didn't we? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was co-existent with God, he was co-equal with God, and he's co-eternal with God. He is God, very God. And so Jesus came into the world to reveal God to us, John goes on to say in 118, and to redeem us to God. He says in verse 1, verse 14, John 1, 14, that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us to give us grace upon grace. Well, what grace do we need? The grace of the forgiveness of our sins. So Jesus came as God to redeem us and to reveal Himself to us. This makes then the the truth of Jesus is coming down to earth all the more astounding that He was God, very God. He came to us from the fullness of deity. Verse 6, if you look at it, is the negative statement. Verse 7 is the positive statement. They mirror verses 3 and 4 in the text. Verse 3 is the command. 
the negative command, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. You want to know what verse 3 looks like? It's seen most clearly and obviously in Jesus not counting his equality with God something to be clung onto. Something he refused to pour out for the benefit of others. And so he did the mental math. He counted the cost. He counted the reality of of his existence and of the, the calling of the Father to go into the world to redeem sinful mankind. And before he could cross the veil between the highest of heavens and the lowest of his creation. Before he could take that step, he had to do the mental math. He had to think about it. He had to weigh it out and consider what is it that I'm leaving and what is it that I'm going into. And that is a mind-blowing thought. This is why the incarnation never loses its awe. In January, you're going to tire of that tree. Maybe you already have. And you're going to put it away. You're going to tire of the lights. You're going to put them away. They'll lose their awe. Five minutes after you open your present, it'll lose part of its awe. Five days, it'll lose more of its awe. Five weeks, it'll probably lose all of its awe, and you'll move on. There is no loss of awe in the very God who considered his essence and his nature, and willingly came into our world. He had to consider this massive step of the highest position to the lowest expression of humanity. And the text says he simply could not hold fast to the position of expressed glory and supreme honor. He just couldn't hold on to it. One of the things he he was holding on to had to give way to another to fulfill the divine mission of redemption and revelation to mankind, he had to let go. He couldn't cling to it and grasp hold of it, refusing to lay it down for us. He saw this position of equality with God as something to be used for the benefit of others. There was no one who could do what he did except him. And as he considered his position, he said, I will go. Verses 7 and 8, then he steps out of the full expression of this equality with God as God and empties himself and comes into our world in the form of a servant and in the likeness of humanity. And he goes to the cross to redeem us from sin. I'll say this several times this morning, but he never ceased to be God. He does not empty himself of his deity. He can't. It's an unchangeable essence. He can never not be what He has always been. He is God, very God. But He added to His deity the very nature of our humanity so that He could lay down that life for you and for me. This is the greatest and largest step down of humility ever known. This is a a humility of unparalleled excellence. And it all begins with this mental assessment by Jesus in which he takes stock of himself and of what he's being called to do. And he determines that he is willing to give himself for this purpose. 
And beloved, this is where humility always begins. Humility always begins in our minds, in our hearts, in the true us. In how we view ourselves in relationship to God and in relationship to one another. Humility is not first seen in what we do. What we do in humble service flows out of how we establish who we are before God and before others. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's not clinging to his exalted position, but willingly stepping into our world. That's where he came from. Consider what he came into. That's in verse 7. In order to come down to us, he had to empty himself by taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, it says. And just to be absolutely clear, Jesus did not empty himself of his divinity. That unchanging essence cannot be denied or taken away. But as God, he determined to humble himself down into our world. And so he came, but he didn't come with all the, the fanfare and the glory deserving of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Rather, he entered in as a slave. Now notice he's in the form of God in verse 6. That's the the morphe of God. It's the unchanging essence of God. He comes into this world and he, he empties himself by taking what? The form of a slave. Morphe, same word. He took upon himself in his incarnation the essence of slavehood, of servanthood. He left the highest of glory and honor and prestige and he took upon himself the lowest position of all, the, the very essence of being a slave. He who is unchangeable and unalterable in his nature and essence is God, very God, pours himself out. He, he lays down that position in his coming in the form of a slave. And friend, this is not a, a make-believe or pretend servanthood in which Jesus kind of coasts through his human reality and kind of has a halo around his head and a capital G on his chest for God, and, and he just kind of coasts through, and, and it's not hard. No, he, he actually was servant to all, as he himself said in Mark 10. Says, Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, he said to his disciples. And then he says, for even the Son of Man. So it's not just a, a calling on you, my disciples, Jesus is saying. He's saying, even the Son of Man, even I have come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This servanthood was so real, it took him to Calvary. It was so true in its essence and its nature that it required of him every part of his life. So much so that, that his life was not his own to live in that sense. He came in obedience to the Father, doing everything that the Father commanded of him so as to complete the plan of our redemption. In other words, he came into this world as a person without advantage, without rights, without privileges expected of someone born of high estate. He was not born of high estate. He was born a slave of all. And this is not a matter of divine mistake or of divine fallacy or of divine error. God didn't wake up after the Nativity scene and say, that was the wrong womb. The wrong person. Now what do we do? No, this is divine choice. 
by Father, Son, and Spirit combined, making the plan for our redemption. And Jesus' mission was to enter into the world as a slave, born in the lowliest of ways, to the lowliest of positions, to be servant of all. Isn't it enough to leave the highest of heavens and enter into this world? Isn't that enough of a humble step? I mean, that in itself is the greatest expression of humility. But that greatest expression of humility is, dare I say, infinitely greater when he chooses to come as slave of all. Not only that, but he came into humanity. He didn't just come as a slave, but he came into humanity. Paul says he came in the likeness of men. He did not just come as a slave, but he he took upon himself the, the likeness of created man. What Paul is emphasizing is the incarnation, that he He took upon himself human nature. He added to his divine nature human nature, and thus we have the theological term, the hypostatic union. Big word, which means lots of mystery. That's what that means. Lots of mystery. Divine nature combined with human nature in one person. The theanthropic, God-made person. There's mystery here. How does this work? Only because God made it work is how it works. This is what we see in Luke 2 when we read the story of his, of his miraculous conception and then his birth to the Virgin Mary. And so Paul chooses his words carefully in Philippians 2. He says Christ was made in the likeness of men. When he uses that term, he knows what he's saying. Morphe, that, that word for form, is the unchanging, unalterable essence in nature. Never gives way, never moves, never changes. This word, schema, is likeness. It's, it's a changing, it's a, a set reality that has ability to change. So you were not born in the same likeness that you exist in today. You were born as a baby, you grew to be a child, and then to a teen, and then to a young adult, and now to whatever age you are now. The full maturity of man or womanhood, right? Your likeness shifted. But in your morphe, you're you're human. Your form is utterly humanity. Paul uses his terms carefully here because the very character and nature of Jesus is not fundamentally altered. It can't be. He's in the morphe of God. But he takes upon his, his form the likeness of man. That does not mean he's not really and truly man. In fact, that's exactly what Paul's trying to tell you. He is fully and truly man and truly God. Gordon Fee describes it better than I just did. He says it this way, this word for likeness. This word allows for the ambiguity, emphasizing that he is similar to our humanity in some respects and dissimilar in others. The similarity lies with his full humanity. In his incarnation, he was like in the sense of the same as. The dissimilarity in this case has to do with his never ceasing to be equal with God. Thus he came in the likeness of human beings because on the one hand he has fully identified with us and because on the other hand in becoming human he was not human only. He was God living out a truly human life all of which is safeguarded by this word the likeness of men. It's a a beautiful expression of the incarnation of God. So Jesus being equal with God did not grasp and cling to that, but laid it down and poured himself out and took upon himself the form of a servant and came in the likeness of men. 
and coming in the likeness of man, he was still truly God and truly man, which is why you see the, the conflict in the Gospels between Jesus and the religious leaders, because he takes unto himself the, the worship of God when it's offered to him, because he is God. He does things that only God could do, because he is God. He speaks with authority that only God could speak with, because he is God. But the religious leaders are looking at him, and they're looking at a man. And they're saying, you are blasphemous. That you take unto yourself the, the praise and the authority of God. That you say to us that you do not speak your own words, but only the words that the Father gives to you. You equate yourself with God. Therefore, you must die. That's how real this union is between true divinity and true humanity in Jesus. This emptying of Jesus is not a, an emptying by which he gets rid of something. It's an emptying of which he adds something to himself. It is, if you will, subtraction by addition. He empties himself by taking the form of a servant. He pours out his exalted position in the highest of heavens and comes into the lowest of positions in creation as a slave. He who was eternally rich with all the lavish glory of heaven became poor by entering humanity through Mary's womb. And he did so for our salvation and for his ultimate glory. His first step of humility was one of mental math. He counted the cost. He considered his position. He considered the work to be done and he gave himself to that work. The second step down was to come into our world and to become a slave. He gave himself, he first gave up his position and then he gave himself as a slave. The third step down is in verse 8 and what he came to do. So what he came to left to leave was his high position. What he came into was our humanity and what he came to do was be obedient. Even to the point of death. That's in verse 8. It's the same word used in verse 6 to describe Jesus as being in the, the form of God. He's in the form of of humanity. In other words, Jesus came into our world in the, the true essence and nature of humanity. He is really and truly human. But that wasn't enough to serve in accomplishing the redemption of sinners. He didn't just show up in Bethlehem as real and true man and it was over. Redemption complete and now can be applied to sinners for the rest of time and eternity. No, he had to do something. In his humility, he had to obey. This is instructive for you beloved. It's not enough to do the mental math and, and give up your position and give yourself over to be a slave to someone. That, that's going to require something of you. You have to do something. You have to obey God in your humbled position. He came in the form of a slave to do what slaves do, to obey every order. Those orders were given to Jesus from the Father in heaven and he fulfilled them to their fullest measure. He says that over and over again in the Gospels, and particularly in John's Gospel, right? That he, he came as a servant to be obedient to his Father. Remember, he said, I, I don't come to seek my own will, but the will of my Father. I don't come to speak my own words, but the words that my Father gives me to speak. I don't come in my own authority. I come in the authority of my Father. Over and over again. Every turn as he defended himself and made an apologetic for his ministry, he pointed to the authority of the Father. In other words, he didn't come into our world 
based on the exercise of his own autonomous authority. He didn't go rogue one day in heaven and say, you know what, today's the day I'm going to do my own thing. Now, before the foundation of the world, the God had in perfect harmony and unity agreed together to send the Son into our world to bring about the fullness of obedience which led Him to the cross of Calvary. This is a costly obedience. It's a sacrificial obedience. It's the most humbling of deaths. The most shameful of existences, that of a slave, is leading on a path to the the most humiliating of finishes. A Roman cross in which he is marred and beaten and crushed under the weight of our sin. Because he was obedient to the Father, he was despised by the world. They said he was demon-possessed. They said he was psychotic. They slandered him as a glutton and a drunkard. Why? Because he was doing what God told him to do. He was obeying his Father's command, and they said, you are a glutton and a drunkard. They impugned his motives. They cast aspersions on his character. They maligned him. And ultimately, they plotted his murder. They tried him unjustly before a Roman prefect. And they used political measures to make sure that the the manipulative scheming of their own plots came to be. And they made sure Pilate could do nothing else but say he must die and scourge him and turn him over to the executioner. But Jesus knew this was coming and no one took his life from him, as he so clearly says in John. As the shepherd of the sheep, he laid down his life for us all. He was obedient all the way to death. Friend, this is the only way, the only way you can have peace with God. This is the only way your sins can be forgiven. This is the only way you can have eternal life. This is the only way you can know the fullness of joy at the right hand of God forevermore. It is through the finished work of the Son who humbled Himself and came into our world and gave His life as a sacrifice for sinners like you and me. So I ask you, do you know the freedom of forgiveness over your soul? Do you know that you've been atoned for? That your penalty has been paid? That that Christ suffered in your place so that you will never have to? Do you know the assurance in the depths of your being as the Spirit of God says to you, you are covered by the blood of Jesus? Do you know the finality and the joy of Christ's work on your behalf. Friend, if you're sitting here today and the Spirit of God is pressing upon you His convicting work and saying to you, you still have sin between you and your God. You still will face the righteous judgment of God as a sinner for you are not yet in Christ by grace through faith. You must know that you have nothing left to do but to believe. There's no religious exercise to raise yourself up so as to make yourself savable. 
No, you must just turn your eyes of faith to the Lord Jesus Christ and look upon the Savior and believe that His life and His death and His burial and His resurrection is sufficient to save you from your sins. And today can be the day of your salvation. In fact, this very moment can be the moment of your salvation. You need not wait. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ right now and live. If this is not yet your existence, your experience, may today be the day by the grace of God. Believer, rejoice with new joy in your humble Savior. Be awed with fresh awe that He came from heaven into our world to be obedient even to the point of death. Don't just be awed, but worship Him. And don't just worship Him in songs and hymns and spiritual songs, but worship Him with your life. Follow the pattern He set for you. That's why He he did this, to redeem you and to set you to do the works He's called you to do. And those works all start with humility. They all start with you counting in the mental math as you survey your world and realize that your life is for the purpose of others and ultimately for God. Be stamped with His humility. In fact, that's the only command in the whole text. It's found in verse 5. Have that mind among yourselves. Put on His mind. Take those steps that He took. Give up your position. And by the way, for most of us, that's a perceived position, isn't it? For Christ, it was real. He was in the highest of all high places. You and I survey the room and and we put ourselves in higher places than we deserve. It's an assumed position. Give that up. Follow Christ here. That's not worth holding on to. That's nothing. In fact, it's sinful. Give up your position and then give yourself as a servant. Give yourself as a slave. See your life as what it is, a a redeemed life for the purpose of serving God by serving others. And then give yourself to the hard work of obedience. Those are kind of the easy steps, one and two. Three is where the rubber meets the road. Give yourself to obedience in humility. Then do what God's calling you to do as a follower of Jesus. Notice that this humility, this humble mindset is not an emptying which belittles Jesus and makes him useless or helpless, and neither is your humility. So many think of humility as, I'm worthless, I'm useless, I'm so terrible and awful. That's not humility. That's groveling. Humility is is what Jesus does here. It's, It's the opposite of what I just described. It's with a humble mindset, it it makes you useful to others. It compels you. You remember this in in John 13, we won't turn there, but you remember this when Jesus comes into the upper room and and there's apparently not a servant there to wash their feet after a long day out. And they're gathered around the table to celebrate the Passover. It becomes the Last Supper. You know this text. And after supper, no one's washed anyone's feet. And and Jesus, the text says, John 13, 3-4, read it later that Jesus knew where he came from and what he was here for and about to do. That's my paraphrase. Because he knew who he was and because he knew why he was here, what did he do next? Tell his disciples to get up and wash everybody's feet. 
deride them and yell at them for not doing what they should have seen to do. No, he got up, donned the towel of a slave, because he was one, and washed every foot in that room, even that of Judas, who would soon betray him. Well, that, that's what it looks like for you and me this week. Surveying your position, knowing why you're here, knowing what you're called to do, in humility, follow our Lord. The greatest barrier standing between you and being useful to our Lord is simply your own pride. So humble yourself as Christ did and see the way forward. I want you to notice as we finish, the result of this humility is for the Lord. Verse 9 begins with the, the word, therefore. Lest we think in any way the incarnation is about us, ultimately. It is about us, as Stuart mentioned at the beginning. It's about our sin. We created the need by our rebellion. But ultimately, it's about God, right? Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You notice the, the subject and object flipped here? In verses 5 through 8, Jesus is the subject. He's the one doing the acting. He's the one doing the thinking and the humbling and the giving. In verse 9, it, it shifts. Now Jesus is the object and the subject is God the Father. And now God gives to the Son the glory and the honor due Him based upon His finished work, His humbling, humiliating work. His humility is in a category by itself, and now His exaltation is to be in a category by itself. He's to be exalted above all, given a name above every name. A name which all creation will be forced to their knee to confess that He is Lord. This is the beauty of God's way and God's design because Jesus didn't cling to His position in heaven but emptied Himself and took upon Himself the form of a servant and became obedient even to the utmost extent that which led Him to the cross of Calvary. He then gains the highest honor possible. You see the beauty of God's design the way up is always down in God's economy. And it starts with His Son. And by the way, this is not a reward for His humility. This is divine vindication. This is God affirming that Jesus is highly exalted. Because how could you be any more highly exalted than having humbled yourself so lowly? It's no wonder then that on the day of Jesus' birth, heaven broke into the world as angels appeared and shepherds saw and heard the message, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And beloved, there's coming a future day when this Jesus will come once again, not as a baby in a manger, but as a righteous judge and a conquering king. And he'll come to judge the living and the dead. And if you are not in Christ, on that day, you will be on the wrong side of history, eternal history. But if you are in Christ, praise be to God, you will declare Jesus is Lord forever. 
and ever. May that be true of all of us on that day. What a day. May it come quickly. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, which awes us again with the glory of your Son. Help us, Lord, to be eternally imprinted with his way of thinking. Help us to count ourselves like Jesus counted himself. One willing to give up our position, to give ourselves as slaves, and humbling ourselves to obedience, even the hardest of obedience, giving our life for your sake. So Lord, would you help us to grow in this way? We pray for those among us who may not yet know Christ. Lord God, by the preaching of your word and the power of your spirit, would you bring them from death to life, from darkness to light. May you receive the eternal praise for your work in that way. In Jesus' name, amen.